This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. This is a special two-part episode. This is the first part of those two parts, and it is a best of 2020. One. And before we get to that, thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence. But Soever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all. And they're always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation. They crush. So Sig, thank you so much. And yeah, I love this one. Oh man. Could not not talk about the AXG Scorpion. One of my favorites from this past year. I have the, uh, the three, six, five right here, uh, on me almost every single day. And if that's not on me, then it's the XL right here or right here, the P320 right there. So thank you guys for all you do. And if anybody hasn't had a Rattler, oh yeah, probably fix that right now. Awesome. Uh, Hunter Games, we did that this year. We did book signings at headquarters. We did book signings at trade shows. Um, and SIG also sponsored the Best Defense Foundation to take 60 three World War II veterans to Pearl Harbor for the 80th anniversary commemoration events. So the youngest was 96. The oldest was 104 years old and senior executives from SIG who were just sponsoring it. They showed up, saw that everyone needed some help and they dove in for that entire week, taking wheelchairs on and off buses, uh, getting these these veterans to and from these different events, getting them back to their rooms, getting them to their, to their meals, taking care of them. Uh, they were, they got their hands dirty. They got in there and, uh, that's true leadership. So, uh, SIG, thank you for that leadership and thank you for your support over all these years in the military during my transition, uh, well before anyone knew who I was. Thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. This clip is from one of my first conversations on the Danger Close podcast, and it's with Mike Glover. Mike spent a career in the United States Army at the highest levels of special operations. He then moved over to the Central Intelligence Agency working there and now runs Fieldcraft Survival right here in Heber, Utah. Awesome guy. Great friend. I'm so glad they moved here. And then we've got to know each other over this last year. Uh, check out their website for sure. Jump in on their classes for sure. I uh, love everything that they have going on. In this clip, Mike talks about the 2012 attacks in Benghazi and how that affected the trajectory of his career and his life. When Benghazi happened, September 11th of 2012, I was actually in the SMU compound doing a cross engagement 
And that thing kicked off. And then we got the word, we spun up, and then me and two of my guys were the first to rip into Libya to go after, at the time, it, it, this is unclassified now, it was classified at the time, but Abu Qatala, who was the guy responsible for coordinating the attack that killed you know, Ambassador Stephen Smith and then the two uh, uh, former Navy SEALs, Glenn Doherty and, and Tyrone Woods. So um, I think I deployed a couple, a few weeks after that, and we went into the country, stood up a counterterrorism element that was a 12-way program, and went after them. And I spent the, la- the, the next six months in Libya running that counterterrorism program and, and looking after those guys. No kidding. That is, that is wild. Yeah. Uh, and, and what, uh, after your, your six months there, how close did you get, or did you, what, what was it? Is he... So two guys that were members of my, we call it team Libya, positively identified, uh, Abu Qatala. Uh, we offered multiple, um, courses of action, which were turned down by the, the chief, um, the country team turned it down. It wasn't the agency. It wasn't, it was the state department. Uh, at the time, because Ambassador Stevens was killed, they had a, a charge that was in charge temporarily. Uh, his name was uh, Alexander Pope, and he turned it down because of the p- political climate. I mean, verbatim, it said, we are not going to do this because of the political climate. We can't afford it politically. And so we did nothing. Um, that, to me, um, was a very clear indication of my path moving forward in the military. And I came back from that rotation, and I think I was out of the Army within the next three weeks. This clip is from my conversation with Fred Burton. Fred is a former State Department Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent and has written numerous books to include Ghost and Beirut Rules, books that I turn to time and time again as I research my novels. So be sure and check those out if you have not read them or if they're not on your shelves already. In this clip, he talks about how Carlos the Jackal came to read his book. And then how did, where, where did Carlos the Jackal fit into to all this? He's on your, well, Carlos, he's on your, de- your desk from day one. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating story, Jack, because, you know, in my generation, when I started, he was the poster child of terror. Right. And I have a book over there called teach- The New Jackals uh, from back in the mid-90s, maybe late 90s. I forget. But I have a whole section here of books that I've collected over time, some of these older books on terrorism from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but yeah, The New Jackals is in there and has that, that title for a reason. Yeah, he was um, literally the poster child. And I remember as a cop reading about Carlos the Jackal. He was this guy that was all around the world carrying out these terrorist attacks. He had done the OPEC summit. Uh, he had assassinated a, um, a Jewish businessman in London. You know, he was a paid hitman. And, you know, he was working uh, for Gaddafi. Uh, he was swimming in all these leftist radical circles with, you know, the old Italian Red, Bri- Italian Red Brigades, the Red Army faction, the Japanese Red Army, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, General Command. And he was living and moving with all these circles. So, he was kind of like the poster child for somebody that you could never catch. Right. And I would sit there in my office and think, my goodness, we have Interpol, we have the CIA, we have U.S. Special Forces, we have MI6, we have everybody looking for this guy. Why can't we find him? And he was, you know, 
being utilized as a nation state gun for hire. So he was traveling under pseudonyms and aliases on diplomatic passports. And so it's kind of an interesting kind of bookend to your question, because if you fast forward uh, uh, many, many years later to after Chasing Shadows came out, uh, I get a call in my office one day, many years after I've left the government, from the uh, FBI in Paris. And they said, hey, we saw your book and we want to reopen this case. And they said, well, who would you interview if you were us? And I said, you know, I would try to get to Carlos the Jackal because I could never get to him to talk to him directly. As a sidebar, Jack, I had been corresponding with his uh, first wife, uh, Magdalena Kopp, who had been a terrorist herself. And she was very helpful. It was amazing to me and still is, you know, the people that will answer my emails. But, <laughs> That's um, incredible. She had been corresponding with me and talking to me about Carlos. And I was asking her questions about the Elan murder, mm. you know, back in the 70s. And she said, well, if anybody would know, Carlos would know. So uh, I pointed the FBI in that direction. And they did uh, some follow-up interviews with Carlos, and I signed a bunch of book books for them, and I actually shipped them off to uh, the FBI, and uh, they they gave one to Carlos. No way! That's yeah, incredible. I, I I don't think he liked it, <laughs> but uh, that is too know, cool. That's oh, that's my, my uh, Carlos story. Oh my! And where is he locked up right now? He's in a French prison for life, for. Um, uh, killing uh, French police officers. This clip comes from my conversation with my friend Ray Porter. Now, Ray is the voice behind the audiobooks of all my novels and is an acclaimed actor, incredible guy, so kind, so humble, and he'll be reading the next book as well in the blood. Uh, you might have seen him as Darkseid on the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Uh, awesome guy, great conversation. Check it out. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So you, uh, so traditional stage, classical stage acting, Shakespearean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, above all, all else, and TV and mm -hmm. film, and then now you're in this CGI world of superheroes. Per, yeah, and you're you're portraying. Dark side who has yeah. a crazy cult following. Is that is that a good way to describe it? I would say, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting cult following, that's for sure. Pretty amazing, really wonderful people. Uh, honestly. But I, I didn't know a lot about the world of comic book fandom until I did this. And uh, uh nicer people you'll never meet. Uh, they're, uh -huh. they're so kind and they, you know, so welcoming, first of all, because okay. when the news broke that it was me you know, playing the role, I really didn't hear a whole lot of who the F is that guy, you know, it was <laughs> more just like, Hey, welcome. Oh, um, that's very cool. And honestly, you know, the world of the comic book villain is about as Shakespearean as it gets, Interesting. you know, all the concatenations and personalities and chain, you know, it's vast. And these people are very schooled. Okay. They know well, what they're they've yeah. given me an education for sure. And how did that come about? So you didn't, uh, did you know who, Darkseid was before you started this project? I wasn't project, terribly or? familiar with the character, no. I mean, I knew, you know, I knew the general sort of the Justice League. I knew the general, you know, the superheroes in it. But I, I was never, I was never real. I always respected comic books and I respected mm -hmm. people who loved them, but it was never really my thing. Right. Um, 
very similar to me. You know, and then I got into this, I got into this film and, you know, Zach decided he wanted me to play this role. And, and, uh, for me, it was just about playing the immediacy of the scene right now, as if it's the first time happening, you know, I can't think in terms of the epic years of backstory with each of these Mm -hmm. characters. I just got to play what's happening right now. Um, so I did that. And then of course, later I've got people asking me, you know, did you do this because, um, you know, way back here, this guy does this, this. I'm like, oh, 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 oh. I had to get an education. Really <laughs> I wish quick. I could say yes to that. Uh, and that's uh, basically, I've always just been honest. It's like, look, yeah, I yeah. didn't know when I was doing it, but yeah. I'm learning. This clip is from my longtime friend, Andy Stump. You might know him from his very popular podcast, Cleared Hot. We went through buds together back in 1997. So we've known each other for quite some time. In this clip, he talks about his transition for military service, his podcast, and why he'll probably never write a book. Would you ever consider, uh, has anybody asked you about writing? All the time. Yeah. Uh, And my answer is, I don't think I'll ever see it happen because here would be the first chapter of the book or the intro. So there I was doing something that many people have done before me. Stop it. But that's like, there's nothing that I did in my career that was extraordinary. Maybe not hasn't been written about. Maybe it's uh, this next phase. I don't know. Let's see it. Well, I got to make it through this phase first and figure out what the hell this phase actually is. <laughs> but, and here's the thing. I struggle. You and I will always be known as SEALs, period. Uh, and I've come to grips with that. At some point in a conversation when we are introduced to people, and this happens up to including last night, it's, oh, hey, this is this is Jack Carr. Um, and then if you, you know, you'll they'll either somebody will say directly, oh yeah, he used to be a Navy SEAL. Or as you leave the conversation, you'll hear people whispering, oh, that's the guy who used to be a SEAL. So it's like, okay, that's part of who we are. If I write a book, it will go in the SEAL category, which is so incredibly full of other people who have written books. I mean, you know, you're a needle in a stack of needles. Yeah. What I, if you differentiate and you're writing about this uh, this transition piece or you're writing about uh, resiliency or podcasting or, uh, you know, this journey post. You know, maybe. Maybe. But you know what the you know what they're going to want to see on the cover? Ex Navy Seal Andy Stump and how to transition to your next phase of life. Like, yeah, just got to put some thought into that. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, there. I was doing things that so many people had done before me, and here I am writing about it as if I was unique. It's like, dude, I was so incredibly average inside yeah, of our well, cohort. You did some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, but a lot of people did cool stuff too, did and cool did stuff, stuff yeah. that makes the stuff I did that it's like. Pfft, That'll always be the case. Yeah, yeah, there's always somebody out there that's done some amazing things, especially going back in history and seeing what some of these guys did. Vietnam, Korea, World War yeah. II prior that gave us the opportunity to be on that beach in California in 1997 getting yelled at and doing push-ups. Yes. Like that is also something that I thought about was, and to put it in perspective, is that everything that was sacrificed from the inception of this country up until today that allowed me the freedom to make the decisions that I made to get to that place on that beach in sunny Southern California, getting yelled at, shivering, and making I feel it like most of the time that happened to us, it was because of you and some type of substandard <laughs> <Possible>. performance. <laughs> that wasn't part of the curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> this clip is from my friend Clint Emerson, former Navy SEAL who operated in the shadows for many years and has taken that knowledge and taken it to the private sector. You can find him, Clint Emerson. Just put that in Google. It'll pop up. Uh, Escape the Wolf, Violent Nomad, uh, 100 Deadly Skills. And yeah, he's got a lot going on out there. Uh, Awesome guy. In this clip, we talk about how he ran with the bulls in Pompolona, Spain, using Ernest Hemingway as a guide. And do I have this right? Did you run with the bulls at some point in Pompolona? 
Yeah. When, when did you do that? Yeah. So I took, uh, uh, I took Hemingway's book, uh, Sun Also Sun, Rises. Sun Always, yep. And I used that as my tour guide through Spain. Nice. So I flew into Barcelona, went up through the Pyrenees, came down into Pamplona, did seven days straight of running every morning. I did it. You know, oh, you did all seven days? From, uh, yeah. Seven. I, I seven, did one day. Yeah. Seven of July <laughs> to the 14th, right? And I think so. Every July. Yep. And yeah, did every morning. And then, uh, and then I continued on to, cause he talks about San Sebastian, yeah. you know, went over there, what a beautiful city. Some of the top chefs come out, t- top 10 chefs in the world always come out of San Sebastian and then hooked back down. But I basically followed that book to a T. That's awesome. awesome. That's another book yeah, in and of itself, great. you know, violent nomading through, uh, through Spain. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did the first right. day. That was enough for Running me. I can't believe you did it seven days. <laughs> yeah. I did it the one day. And, uh, what I didn't realize, I thought you just ran through the streets. I kind of didn't get that you, if you, your goal is to make it to that stadium at the end. And yeah. uh, so I did, I, I made it to that thing. I made it in there and, uh, and it funnels for people that don't know, like, and this is, gosh, I'm going back. 30 years. Anyway, a long time. I did it. So you're running through <laughs> the streets and people like the Spaniards are on the side, like trying to push you back in, like push the Australians, you know, the British, the Americans, like kind of yeah. back into the streets in the path of these bulls. And, uh, and I remember it going down these streets and then it like funneled down into the stadium. I remember it like bottlenecked if my if memory serves, which has like been a while. And then it, it drops does, down and then goes in. Uh, and I didn't really expect that, but then everybody who's running gets bottlenecked. So it slows down, but the bulls don't really slow down. And I remember, <laughs> and I remember getting into the the stadium. I'm like, yes, I made it. That was crazy. And then what happened was they let fresh bulls in because the ones that have been running through the streets, they're tired at this point. And yeah. then they open up the fresh bulls that are just raring to go. And then they run in and the stadium was full of people and they're just cheering, you know, they want to see some people get skewered. And, uh, that was awesome. It was a great experience. <laughs> yeah. I keep going back and looking for yeah. photos. I'm trying to find a photo somewhere in like these boxes we've moved so many times. There's gotta be at least one, but, uh, but yeah, someday I'll find I've, one. I've done the same a couple of times where I fa- I have found a couple yeah. and I found a video, uh, that, of me running by and it was it was one year where it made the newspapers where this one bull just totally destroyed somebody crazy you know and it's uh yeah it's the it's the lone beware of the lonely bull that's the quote that's the biggest thing if they're together they stay calm but the one that gets separated from the pack is the one that's going to kick everybody's ass it's a lancy yeah oh man yeah wild super cool wild yeah i highly recommend people go do that yeah no it's super fun i mean i only did it once and i probably wouldn't do it again but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hopefully I'm a little bit wiser now, but, uh, back then, yeah. you know, in the early nineties, that was, that was a good time. This clip is from my conversation with Sebastian Younger. He is a journalist, war correspondent, Academy Award nominated filmmaker, and number one, New York times best selling author. He's the author of the perfect storm, a death in Belmont war, fire tribe, and his latest freedom in this clip. He talks about leadership in America. Are you hopeful for, uh, as far when you look at leadership, political, military, corporate, um, is it drawing the right kind of people? Well, I, you know, I think military leadership uh, for the most part is enormously uh, um, courageous. And uh, I mean, at least in my, exp- in my experience of it, um, uh, in Afghanistan, I mean, all of the officers that I met were, you know, if, if you had said to them, would you be willing to risk your life on the front line with these soldiers in the next battle, I think every single one of them would be like, oh, absolutely. It drives me crazy that I'm stuck behind the desk yep. in front of a computer yep. while these guys are getting shot at, right? 
So sometimes people say, what kind of leaders do we deserve? And my quick answer is we deserve leaders who will die for us, like literally die for us, because that has been the human standard for moral leadership for 50,000 years. And now all of a sudden, it's not. And um, I don't quite know what to do about that other than to insist on some kind of sacrifice by our political leaders, at the very least that they give up the possibility of enormous financial gain because of their position of power. And, uh, you know, Democrats are just as bad as Republicans at this. Um, I, I really do wonder, for example, why Mitch McConnell, how, how Mitch McConnell came to have tens of millions of dollars. I don't understand the math, right? <laughs> and if that if that's like moral, self-sacrificing, altruistic leadership, then Jesus, we're we're screwed, yeah. right? So so the and you know I feel like the country, the citizenry. There was just a report on ProPublica, which has had a lot of exposure in the last few days about the tax rate paid by you know multi-billionaires, like the top twenty-five richest, and it's like one percent, right? The game is so completely rigged that the very wealthiest people have sort of legal loopholes allow them to not contribute to the public good. Why aren't our politicians not plugging those loopholes? You know, because they're in, in bed with them, right? I mean, the whole thing. So, you know, at, at some point, the American public on the left and the right, I think will realize that they have a, a common cause in returning um, morality and fairness to the way our legislatures do business. But right now, it's it looks completely corrupt. I mean, not quite Afghanistan in the 90s, mm -hmm. but I feel like we're we're sort of creeping in that direction. This clip is from my conversation with Jocko Willink. You probably know him from his extremely popular podcast or from the numerous books that he has out there, both for adults and young adults and children. Awesome guy. He put me through two of my pre-deployment workups, and uh, we talk about that a little bit on the podcast as well. But uh, in this clip, we talk about preemptive ownership. Enjoy. What are you hoping that somebody that knows about you, that's listening to the podcast, that's on the path, they're in high school, they're in college, and now they're going into the world. Uh, yeah. What do you want them to take take on that journey with them? Well, one, one thing I think is very important, and I wrote about this in Leadership Strategy and Tactics, and the, the it's something that I call preemptive ownership. And what this means is extreme ownership is really awesome, but it's past tense, right? Oh, I made this mistake. I'm going to take ownership of it. I'm going to fix it. Well, there's, there's preemptive ownership, which is, which is actually the ideal, which is, hey, if we go on this mission and something goes wrong, it's on me. So I need to set it up in such a way that nothing does go wrong. Or if I'm a, you know, I always like to talk about the commanders of, of ships. If a Navy ship runs aground, that commander is getting fired. So if I know that, then I go through steps. I take preemptive ownership to make sure my people have the training, to make sure that they understand what they're doing, to make sure that the systems are all working up and running. So I take preemptive ownership because I can, I can have much more control that way. And that's the same with your life. Like we have so much control over our lives. So if you're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, 13, whatever age you are, you have so much, if you take ownership of what's going on in your world, preemptive ownership to say, okay, this is what I want to be doing. Here's how I can get there. This is where I want to be. Here's how I can move to get into that position. Here's who I want to be. And here's what I can do to become that person that I want to be. And I was like, like I said earlier, I was very lucky because I joined the SEAL teams. I joined the Navy and all of a sudden my goal became very clear. And I took all this energy. Just, I just wanted to be a good SEAL, Jack. That's what I want. I just want to be a good SEAL. Well, 
you can pick, pick that out of your life. If you're a young person, you can say, this is what I want to do. And you can start to move in that direction. Look, am I a Pollyannic person that says, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You can do anything in life. No, there's limitations to what you can do, but I'm going to tell you what you can try and you will become a, the best possible version of you that you can ever be. If you try and do something that is that, 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 is, that you set your sights on. So I would say take preemptive ownership of your life. Look at where you want to be in the future and start to make moves that will get you in that direction. I think one of the biggest disconnects that kids have is they don't understand how their present day life impacts their future. And I feel very lucky, Jack, because by the time I was looking around saying, I wonder what I'm going to do with my life. I'd been in the SEAL team for 15 <laughs> years. It was like, I, I was so lucky. I had other friends that at 15 years after high school were saying, you know, I, uh, maybe I should do something besides landscaping. Maybe I should do something besides, you know, painting buildings. Maybe I should do something besides, you know, working at the restaurant. It took them 10 years, 12 years to, to make a move. You and I, well, I, I can at least say I, I was very lucky. I, by the time I looked around, the first time I looked around, I was the Admiral's aide. The first time I looked around and said, you know, what do I, what I should do with my life? I was the Admiral's aide. I've been in for 15 years. And then it was like, okay, well, what should I do? Oh, I guess I kind of do have a career. Oh yeah, I guess this is a career. So you can, you can, you can make those steps. So if you're a young person out there, figure out what you want to do, figure out where you want to be. And you don't have to be perfect. I say this all the time, five-year plan. I don't really have a five-year plan because all kinds of windows of opportunities are going to open up. I don't know what those are, but figure out who you want to be, figure out where you want to be and put a plan together to get you moving in that direction. And if you do that, you'll be, you'll, you'll look up in three years and you'll be shocked at the progress that you've made. And it'll be, it'll be awesome. This clip comes from my conversation with Ayan Hershey Ali. I felt so honored to be able to speak with her. She was born in Somalia, grew up in Africa, sought asylum in the Netherlands, where she eventually ran for parliament, served in parliament. She is a women's rights advocate, a free speech advocate, a New York Times best-selling author, and she was working with Theo Van Gogh on a film called Submission when he was murdered by a radical Islamic extremist. Uh, his head was almost severed from his body, and a letter was stabbed into his chest with a butcher knife. That letter was written to Ayan Hershey Ali. In this clip, we talk about the power of books and stories to impact cultures around the world. And, uh, it, it, and before that, even when you were in, uh, I think you're in Ethiopia at the time and you start reading and you start reading first, there's Huckleberry Finn and Wuthering Heights. And then you get these, there's Daniel Steele and Robert Ludlum. And it just really shows those books in particular, those types of books in particular show the power of popular culture as it, you know, it, it heads out from the West and goes to these other cultures that aren't familiar with some of these themes. And from those kind of books, it was amazing to me as an author and someone who loves to read. And uh, my mom was a librarian when I was uh, growing up. So I grew up with books and a love of reading. But what those books did for you, as you describe in the book, is, wow, men and women are equal. Women have the same choices as men. And uh, so that was incredible for, for me to read yeah. uh, just through the lens of, of popular culture. And I'll say it's popular culture, and then there's American popular culture, which really reaches out to every corner of the world. 
And I think that is when we have our adversaries in America, whether they be the Chinese or back in the day in my time, it was the Soviet Union um, or, or Russia now, or you know, uh, the Islamists in Muslim majority countries. I think what infuriates them the most is this culture that's produced in America that then permeates through their own cultures and starts to displace things. You know, I, I read those books, the Nancy Drews, and I started to imagine myself a Nancy Drew and imagine that there was a world where as a young girl, I could do all of those things, solve mysteries, uh, have friends, male friends as my equals, uh, go to school, finish school, uh, you know, have be the master of my own mistress, of my own destiny. That is American culture writ large. And we were listening to music by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And my mother and all the other relatives uh, who are Muslim were really upset by that, worried by that, because that is so against our own culture. And I think if Americans simply understood that you could attract, I mean, you don't even have to, to try. <laughs> People are attracted to that culture. Um, but I think if we, if we were to market the idea of America, it would catch on. It would catch on way better than the ideology of the Islamists, well, the Soviet Union is done for, but the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. This combination of political freedom, economic freedom, and cultural freedom it's, it's a very, very powerful cocktail. And I think that Americans don't understand it because they live it. This clip comes from my conversation with Dean Stott. Dean is a former operator in Britain's SBS, Special Boat Service. He's an endurance athlete, a speaker, an author, all around amazing guy. Uh, and he worked in the security sector for quite some time. This clip, we talk about how he used fish trucks to help evacuate the Canadian embassy in Benghazi. But then, so, but you go back and then you come back, I think maybe one more time. And that's the, uh, the uh, evacuating the Canadian contingent and using that's fish it, trucks. Yeah. And, 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 and then what was that about? Like that was, that was pretty wild. Yeah. So I'd, I've been in and out of Libya still a couple of times since, but then I was out in Brazil doing the world, covering the world cup. And what happened now is the Tripoli war, which is a civil war between the militias and the government. Um, so that, job with the prime minister was um, September 13. This was now July 14. And so I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy. They'd obviously heard about the Benghazi stuff and other things. And they said, look, your name keeps coming up. You know, the situation is here. Everyone's gone. The Americans, Brits, Italians are already left. And they, they were still stuck behind. They're stuck behind because they were shredding or that they're not going back in. Whereas the other embassies were coming back in. So they, they, they got um, caught behind. And so, um, and they said, your name keeps coming up. They had, there was 18 military and four diplomats, they had their own CP team, uh, things like that, but they'd never left the walls of Tripoli. Is it, the, the coastal road is only 100 kilometers to the border. Mm. And I'd already got a couple of guys out from, for USAID in low profile vehicles, in little taxis, just got them straight across again, not drawing any attention to them, but using my fixer because his family from Zwala, which is on the border. So again, having okay. those right contacts and we had safe houses along the way. So I flew back in from uh, Brazil into Tripoli and, you know, liaised with their CP team. 
but they had no insight of what was going on outside of, of their accommodation in Palm City. So a week before the British Embassy got shot at every checkpoint um, in the B6 vehicles with the red number plates. And so me and, <laughs> my, me and Abubakar went out and we spoke and we did all the intelligence stuff. We spoke to the tribe, didn't speak to the guys with the guns, spoke to the tribal elders, told them what our, our plan was, our objective, and when we were doing it. And it was actually all about respect and communication. And, and, you know, they appreciated it. And actually, where the Brits got shot at, one of the main towns, we then got escorted when we came out because they knew we were coming. And, and it, you know, it was just a different approach rather than just that hasty, that hasty move. Uh, it's right. high time, you know, assess the situation. So, yeah, so they were in their vehicles. And then myself and Abu Bakr in a soft vehicle uh, ahead of the convoy, you know, speaking to the, the checkpoints, you know, liaison, you know, Palming some 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 hands with cash as you do, yeah. uh, and then just safely got them through. Yeah, so evacuated the Canadian embassy. Eighteen men. We had UAV coverage as well from the from the from the border. But obviously, they could only because they're diplomatic vehicles. No one's allowed to go in enter their vehicles. They had much more kit than that. So their their issue mm-hmm. was the kit. So again, rather than having vehicles attached to them, because people will be wondering what those vehicles are. Every day from Tripoli, there's fish, fish, fig, fish wagons which take fish from Tripoli into Tunis. So they do that route every day. They know the borders. They know the things. So that's what I did. I, I employed two fish wagons uh, who do that route all the time, and we put all this. And it was a lot of it was sensitive kit as well. Put it in there. Well, the sense, a lot of this more sensitive kit was with them, but there was stuff in there which was just too bulky for their vehicles. And you could see yeah. they were a bit nervous about it, but. They, they got straight through. They were actually in there before we were. So, um, so it's just another approach, um, a low profile, you know, in fish wagons that do it daily. So That's incredible. Yeah. So you're like the guy to call to evacuate from these kind of, uh, you know, these, these kind of situations. I mean, you got quite the, quite the background in the military yeah. at the, at the tip of the spear in the military. And then here doing these, uh, the, in the, in the private sector. I mean, yeah. it's, it's incredible, especially all around the world, but particular the, the expertise and understanding of uh, of Libya and what's going yeah. on on there is is astounding. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. If you like this, be sure and tune in Friday for part two of this two-part best of Danger Close 2021. And thank you again to Six Hour for making all of this possible. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.